This is the Global Crossroads podcast. Each episode will bring you stories about global issues such as climate change, violence against women, fundamentalism, migration, and the rise of right-wing populism. The show is hosted by Chrissy Stroop, Deidre Sugiuchi, and myself, Deepak Singh. This is Deepak Singh. Welcome to Global Crossroads Podcast. We are back with the part two of our conversation with Jeff Charlotte, the author of The Family and Sea Street. In this episode, we will begin right where we ended with Chrissy's question in part one of the show. Here's the other thing that really frustrates me uh, about sort of the, the, the liberal American public's understanding of religion and Christianity. You say Jesus, no one asks questions because everyone's like, oh, Jesus is great. Jesus is wonderful. But, you know, it's, it's not like the Gospels, let alone the entire Bible, are, are nothing but the Sermon on the Mount and the nicer parts of the Sermon on the Mount. Personally, I think that Jesus plus nothing theology, you can find it in the Gospels when Jesus says things like, whoever does not hate his mother or brother or sister and even his own life cannot be my disciple. I mean, there's an authoritarian side to Jesus in the Gospels, right? So it's a multivalent uh, textual tradition, and you can, you can have a liberal interpretation that is still a valid form of Christianity. Well, and that's an interesting thing, and that's a way in which I think liberal Christians sometimes inadvertently participate in this sort of this veil of ignorance in the sense that the response to this fundamentalist Christ is to insist that that's not the real Jesus. And the fundamentalists are not wrong when they can, as you say, they can say, no, the real Jesus also had, you know, uh, woe be to the pregnant woman or to the Jew when he returns. Um, you know, this is not, there is a very frightening version of Jesus too. And so that means if you want to, you know, the Christians that I just love and respect and revere are those who really want to wrestle with that whole tradition um, and recognize, recognize also not just what gets lost in translation in the United States, but what gets lost in translation uh, internationally. You know, I've been looking a lot uh, lately at Brazil because of uh, uh, the, I, I want to call him a dictator. He's elected, but not fairly. Uh, Bolsonaro, who is in the news and sort of on everybody's mind now, because he's the guy who's letting the Amazon burn and uh, is endangering the whole world. Um, and we're not really having the conversations about where does Bolsonaro come from, what is the American relationship, um, which goes back into the family. He was very involved with the Brazilian generals that uh, Bolsonaro sort of cites as his, his uh, uh, model in the 1960s, and then the rise of an American-style Christian right evangelical movement in that Catholic country. Theology matters. There's a big difference between liberation theology and the brutal Christ that Bolsonaro is very sincere um, about loving. He loves this monster god that wants to burn the Amazon. Um, sincerity is, is not enough. And if we're not asking those questions about theology and looking at them in a global perspective, um, then we're going to fall prey to that, that, that misperception of the press and of some liberal Christians who want to pretend that this isn't real Christianity, that it's just going to go away. Um, it's, it's, 
you know, it's why here I am doing this Netflix family series. Um, and it's a little bit, I, I first published a book in 2008. Um, and it, it got a little bit of attention. Uh, NBC Nightly News led with it. Um, they were interested in Hillary Clinton's use of the family as a sort of liaison to the Christian right and her own actually surprisingly conservative efforts. Not to say she's any kind of stealth fundamentalist, she's not, but those networks were important and they thought this is big news. There was no follow up. Everyone wanted to talk about Obama and Jeremiah Wright. The goddamn America. So we never got past that. We never got to the level of saying, well, what is a theological tradition in which he says, goddamn America? We didn't even get to that. So we never followed up on that. And the book sort of disappeared. 2010, I come out with another book, C Street. And this time there's sex scandals. And um, and there's also, amazingly, an international story breaks through the family sponsorship and uh, the African nation of Uganda of something called the Kill the Gays Bill, which is exactly what it sounds like, a genocidal initiative. And it becomes big, big news. And um, uh, ever, you know, reporters who had before been telling me, you're crazy, this doesn't exist, now saying, you know, yeah, we want to cover this. The family is forced to go public for the first time. And, you know, I thought, great, now this is really going to make changes. And here we are in 2019, and this series comes along, and you get something like that Atlantic review saying, oh, what's this about, you know? Or you even get something like um, World Magazine, leading Christian right magazine. Mm -hmm. And it's complicated, because in the beginning, the first coverage World gave of this was to say that I made it all up. And then they assigned some investigative reporters, and they actually did excellent investigative reporting following the money. They decided that comparing Jesus to Hitler did not sit well with them. Um, And they followed the money, and they did great investigative reporting. Comes 2019, they forgot and they've done that and they're back to saying this doesn't exist. Um, yeah, but it, it does exist and it's having an effect globally. So can you discuss like the, anti, the anti-woman and the anti-gay rhetoric of the family and how that's shaping policy, not just in the United States, but worldwide? Um, yeah, I think, I think, uh, you know, the, I don't know, the term I've been thinking of is this kind of gender nationalism. Um, and, and it's converging. Look, you know, I never want to argue that the family is any kind of puppet master, grand conspiracy. They're just one more node and, and, you know, a broad right wing or authoritarian social movement. Um, it's scarier now than ever has been in my life because it's not just the United States, it's Brazil, it's Indonesia, it's, it's Russia, it's India. Um, it's China, of course, and uh, it's Boris Johnson in England, and um, uh, it's the young right winger and, and Austria and all these other kind of figures. Um, and uh, what you notice in something like the family, which for most of its history was dedicated to anti-communism, first and foremost, um, and in fact didn't really care about too many other fundamentalist concerns. Um, and that's a hard case to make these days. I mean, we still see, you know, alt-right Nazis and so on talking about communists, but it's, it's, it's not a global power. Um, and authoritarians always need, they need an external enemy, but they need an internal enemy. Communists function terrific as such, right? Um, there would be the evil empire, but there also could be, you know, um, why in uh, my high school, the civics teacher with a beard, a beard, huh? Like Lenin. Um, uh, and you could always be suspicious. That disappeared. And what replaced the communists as the boogeyman was, I think, uh, the gay man. 
and the gay man singular, not as an actual gay man, um, the gay man, right? This figure um, uh, that especially uh, overseas could be seen as being exported from the West. So throughout Africa, you see uh, homophobic movements framing themselves as anti-colonialism, saying that uh, the LGBTQ rights are, are, uh, are kind of neo-colonialism exported by the West. Um, and you, can have, you have your external enemy, and then you also have your internal enemy because you never know. I, I would add uh, it is the gay man and the transgender woman, uh, you know, being one of the latter. And it all comes from the same place. I mean, it comes from a place of patriarchal supremacism. Uh, it comes from a place of misogyny and uh, masculinity. There's a whole long history of this with the British Empire and so forth. You know, um, it's it's not that female homosexuality or uh, transgender men would go unpunished entirely, but there really is this extreme fear around men or people who are assumed to be men uh, giving up their their masculinity, becoming too weak, becoming too soft, and then they won't be able to, uh, you know, they'll, they'll weaken the empire or the, the lingo that they like today is, you know, Western civilization. Um, the gay man, the effeminate man, the beta male is uh, a cultural Marxist who's destroying Western civilization itself. And we even saw this, this kind of rhetoric, which is very racist. I mean, it comes out of this, this whole demographic panic, which is, I mean, it's, it's, it's patently obvious that it's about white babies because the world has no shortage of babies. Uh, you know, we even saw this used very recently by president of the Southern Baptist Theological Center, uh, Theological Seminary, um, Albert Moeller, who uh, took some flack on Twitter the other day for making the ridiculous statement that um, to be human is to be a parent and that you can't really pass on civilization without being a parent, in his view. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think you're ex exactly right. And uh, I mean, I say the gay man and, and, and don't include the trans woman when I say that only because What's interesting to me is, and I think what you're really getting at is any deviation from this manliness. And it goes back to that whole traditional muscular Christianity. I was just speaking to a friend who's writing um, uh, asylum reports for uh, uh, trans women from Brazil who are trying to, um, uh, trying to escape Bolsonaro and his, his, his regime and so on. It's, it's, it, it really is. The focus is on, on um, the erosion of muscular power. Um, and, and I think, you know, that overlapped back in the Cold War because communism was somehow suspect and less than manly uh, uh, in the West. And I think mm -hmm. it takes this same form. And, you know, Chrissy, you know, I know you're you're real uh, sort of uh, expert on the Russian situation, which I've, I've reported on just a little bit. Um, uh, but you there see you see Putin mobilizing that same kind of fear of loss of manliness. Um uh, to to build up his nationalism. Yeah, absolutely. Putin likes to pose shirtless. So did Mussolini, as uh, as far as that goes. And Putin has very effectively rebranded Russia as kind of the global standard bearer for uh, quote unquote traditional values conservatism, or what we often in America call family values conservatism, uh, and that has been really effective for gaining influence, I mean, for the Kremlin to gain influence among the European hard right, the Eurosceptic right, the American Christian right, 
Um, Russia is a really important center in a lot of these networks. I'll put in a little plug for my own work on the World Congress of Families as a kind of important international network for the pursuit of right-wing politics, for strategizing and that sort of thing. Uh, it's been a Russian-American project mainly since it's, since its inception, but it brings together people from a lot of different countries. And interestingly, uh, some of the Russian representatives there, uh, they like to sell the idea that liberalism is, quote-unquote, the, the new totalitarianism, that it, it, it's, it's the idea that, you know, secularism and communism are basically the same thing, which is also a direct quote of Franklin Graham. Uh, and so we have to turn back to religion as, as the source of values. And, um, you know, I, I think we've seen how that's been very effective. And in um, your work on The Family, the, the Netflix uh, docuseries, you, you brought things beyond the 2008 book. And you looked a little bit at the Russia connection with the National Prayer Breakfast in 2017 and the whole scandal with uh, Maria Butina. Yeah, I did. And, and actually, in my next book uh, uh, called uh, This Brilliant Darkness, coming in February, there's a chapter. I, I, I went and did some reporting, um, really just sort of pretty elementary reporting in Moscow and St. Petersburg on um, uh, just what it was like to be an LGBT person uh, under under Putin um, and ended up stumbling into sort of a, a meeting of sort of like the League of Evil Super Friends. Uh, of of all the right wing groups that were sort of organizing together um, to terrorize queer people uh, in Russia. I mean, it was really there was there was guys in tracksuits, there was uh, uh, military uh, figures, there was old babushkas and and religious men, there was Cossacks in nineteenth century Cossack outfits, um, skinheads, all meeting together. And the leader of this movement actually had on his desk. Um, a bouquet of the flags of the Confederacy, and I mean the American Southern Confederacy, uh, that had been given to him, he said, as a gift from one of his American uh, Christian friends. He wouldn't say who it was, but in this, this difficult room um, where they were very suspicious of me, part of the way I got them to speak to, to me is by saying, and um, uh, I it somehow came up that I had interviewed Tony Perkins, the leader of the Right Wing Family Research Council. And that was like to them like a rock star, you know, Tony Parker. <laughs> um, that was my what we like. Um, and uh, th that was my in. And you sort of saw that kind of that sort of Russia taking a leadership role and functioning in the United States like this. And you see that in, in episode three of, of The Family and, and one of the current leaders of The Family, a guy named Doug Burley, who was, you know, the organizer of the National Prayer Breakfast is the guy who brought this Russian spy, Maria Butina, in. And he's joking about collusion. I mean, he thinks <laughs> the guy who was, he organized the Moscow Prayer Breakfast for oligarchs. He, he thinks these relationships are good. These are the people we ought to be talking to. But that relationship goes both ways. And Chrissy, you've probably seen this. Is it was fascinating on the Russian right right now. Um, I don't speak Russian, so I had to work through a translator. And I would be interviewing people, and I would hear little English phrases peppered in their Russian mm -hmm. because, you know, pro-life, pro-life, it just, they, they weren't developing Russian terms for this. They were borrowing this stuff, whole cloth.
listening to Global Crossroads podcast. This is a conversation with Jeff Charlotte, the author of The Family and C Street. go it does go both ways in terms of the influence there but the anti-choice movement in Russia such as it is was absolutely built up on American models with translations of American texts from the 1990s and uh, also I lived in Moscow from 2012 to 2015 and um, you know Russians and Americans and this was true in the Soviet days too I mean there is kind of a similar style of populist, boorish sort of patriotism. And in my most recent period living in Russia, those years, it was not uncommon at all to uh, come across Confederate flags in Moscow. Here, too, in Vermont, all the places the Confederacy, you just wonder. Uh, I, I, I have a neighbor not too far from here who flies a Confederate flag. He, is, uh, um, he has never been south of Massachusetts um, uh, but uh, he feels that it, it represents something. And 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 of course it does, you know, and that's that's the the troubling thing. These ideas, I mean, I, the, the ultimate sort of irony will be if we start seeing Confederate flags and and some of the uh, African nations where the American Christian right is so influential. And again, where uh, in Uganda, where I reported on the Kill the Gays bill and the family's sponsorship of this um which was a very much an American product. In fact, homophobia, as as we understand it in the United States, and as it's come recently to be understood in Uganda, is almost a whole cloth American export. You know, you talk to people. There was there was certainly um, there was certainly cultural taboos and so on. But really, before the two thousands. Uh, people would say no one ever talked about this. And, you know, there were people that you knew, men who slept with men, women who slept with women, men who dressed as women, all these things. And they, it just was not as significant a part. It certainly wasn't a political project. It certainly wasn't a right-wing political project. And it wasn't until American uh, churches ended up exporting this. And you'd go to big Ugandan megachurches and you'd hear the sermon. You say, is that, that sermon's really Ugandan sermon? No, they would be using sermons from Rick Warren's church, just preaching the exact same sermon. Um, and, and that is, that is, uh, you know, uh, right-wingers like to talk about Hollywood and, and global export of decadent values. Um, uh, I don't know about decadence, but certainly Hollywood is a global influence, but just as much as the global export of American style culture war. It kind of just helps me make sense of my life, you know, as far as um, when you talk about, or all of our, the lives that we're all now living, when you talk about how they've used wedge issues like homosexuality and like the pro-life movement um, worldwide to, to um, encourage the rise of nationalism, but I do want to go back to this, why the f- focus on the pro-life movement is so important is because the whole, the whole idea is that women's national, natural role is to have children, right? So, I mean, I mean that it's, it's anti-woman, this, this, this fundamentalist, fundamentalist threat, it's anti-woman and anti-gay. And I just want to underline that. 
Yeah, I mean, that's actually, um, it's interesting. There's been uh, a, a modest criticism of uh, the family that the, the series was that we didn't talk enough about, we don't hear enough women's voices and we didn't um, talk enough about um, the sort of the, the patriarchy of the organization. And, 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 and to a certain extent, we felt like if you don't look at this thing where women are relegated to serving roles, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, there's a house for young men being groomed for leadership called Ivanwald. There's a house for young women being groomed to be their wives called Potomac Point. Um, uh, the young men would be invited to come in and sit in on these, uh, these meals with, uh, uh, ambassadors and senators and so on. The young women would be invited to come and serve and clean and cook. Um, uh, and you know, that was something that was pervasive and, and, you know, the lack of women's voices in the series is reflecting the lack of women's voices and leadership in the organization, which mm-hmm. subscribes to an idea um, and, and, and this is not theirs alone. This is a popular evangelical idea uh, of male headship that as Christ is to the church, so a man must be to um, his family. Uh, you know, we tell the story of uh, Governor Mark Sanford, who um, was governor of South Carolina at the time, uh, uh, kind of a presidential prospect on the right. And uh, until he disappeared and um uh, his staff told the press that he was hiking the Appalachian Trail. In fact, he was going to Argentina to see his mistress. And um, and that story got played in the press kind of for laughs as a goofy hypocrite. Um, the really more terrifying story is a story that his wife, Jenny Sanford, told afterwards um, about how Mark Sanford used the family um, to essentially control his marriage um, he told his wife um, that instead of dealing with him, she would be dealing with another man in the family. And, uh, yeah. and she calls this man Jack. And she actually embraces this idea ultimately. She says, Jack told her that she was not to burden her husband with tears or complaints, that he'd been chosen by God for power. and He had sinned. That was terrible. But that if she had any issues, that she should bring them to the family. And then they would deal with it with Governor Sanford, man to man, that her job. Um, and the job of women is to wait. In the 592 boxes of the family's archives, there are a few women. They will work with powerful women. They, they work with any kind of power, but there's very few women. And the wife of the longtime leaders, Doug Coe, he was the leader for, for decades, she makes about one appearance. Jan Coe, her name was. And there's a tribute to how wonderful she has been all these years at waiting in the car. And that was her work for God. Um, so in some ways, it's, it, it, yes, it's anti-woman. It's, it's almost just the erasure of women altogether. Mm-hmm. Just not there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering, um, who was America's worst president? And you say it's not Trump yet. But, and what is this noise of democracy he was trying to mute? And then also, what can we do now, you know, to resist and to have hope for the future? Well, everybody knows America's worst president, of course, is James Buchanan, uh, 1856 to 1860. Um, the president who walks you into the Civil War really wins the prize. Um, Trump seems like he, he might be, uh, he likes superlatives. He might be vying for that, that, that distinction. And Buchanan really was terrible um, and awful. But there's this one little saying, one little saying that at one point there was, of course, a lot of heated 
debate in the le years leading up to the Civil War. And there were some voices saying, let's just have civility, right? Let's uh, agree mm -hmm. to disagree, and the South will have its slaves, and the North won't. And we'll just, let's just be civil with one another. And Buchanan, to his credit, and this one time says, I like the noise of democracy. The noise of democracy. We are constantly being told that democracy should be a harmonious, that it's, it's all about unity. Democracy is about arguing. Democracy is about sharp elbows. Um, civility is not democratic. Uh, democracy is about making our, letting our arguments be as tough as they need to be so that we don't turn to bullets so that we don't turn to force. Let us have our fiercest disputes um, uh, in, in the halls of Congress and let us put the issues plainly and talk about them. That's the noise of democracy. And I think that's, you know, the family began as a, a so-called good government group by which they meant anti-organized labor. They didn't like it when organized labor went on strike. Um, that wasn't civil. Why don't um, the workers and the bosses just sit down together and we will civilly decide uh, how to handle things? Um, the noise of democracy is when uh, uh, people all over America, but especially American women, spoke up about Brett Kavanaugh and said, hell no. And yet a lot of people, even people who did not decide to describe themselves as right wingers, will sit out saying, that's not fair. Let's discuss this civilly. Let's Let's smooth it over. Uh, what the great social theorist uh, Herbert Marcuse said, described as the smooth, democratic, unfreedom of uh, American politics. Um, uh, that the United States uh, doesn't need always to resort to authoritarianism um, because we use this rhetoric of civility uh, to quiet dissent. Um, and that is what we can do. In the series, the series, look, a lot of people look at this Netflix series and they go, oh, this is worse than I thought. Um, but there are rays of hope in it. Uh, we traveled to Romania where uh, a congressman, uh, Bob Adderholt of Alabama, right-wing Republican congressman, mm -hmm. um, uh, is sent by the family to export American culture war to support an anti-LGBTQ initiative in Romania. And it loses. It loses. Um, it loses because uh, Romanian LGBTQ people and their allies organize and they make noise and they are not polite and they fight back. Even in Uganda, which we also see in that same episode um, uh, where they introduced the most draconian anti-LGBTQ bill in the world, the Kill the Gays bill, as it was called. They called it the the. the the, the supporters of the bill called it kill the gays. That's what it was, death penalty for homosexuality. Um, that wasn't defeated internally. That had massive support within Uganda, um, but it was defeated globally. And people all over the world spoke up um, and made it too hot for that government to pursue that. So uh, that's what we do. Now we can also work, um, and I think you know the work that, that, that you all do is, is absolutely essential. Um, uh, there's ways in which we can look sort of globally. There's ways in which, um, uh, oh, I don't know, the Chattanooga Times Free Press just did a report on uh, former Congressman, Republican Congressman Zach Womp, who we see in the series as a spokesman mm -hmm. for the family. And this is actually not tough investigative journalism, but at least what they do is they just juxtapose his statements, oh, there's no secrecy here with the organization's own statements about its own secrecy. Other press 
uh, Red, Red, Red Oklahoma did a hell of an investigation on Senator Jim Inhofe's use of taxpayer dollars to promote what he called his Jesus thing, which is to say his homophobic crusade uh, throughout Africa on behalf of the family. Um, it didn't stop him from getting reelected. Uh, you won't always win, um, but you make noise and you make it at every level and you carry on even though the struggle is going to be long term. And I think this to me, and I, I, I look as a student of history, um, we've never faced a moment like this before where there's a global authoritarian mo uh, movement and there is no counterweight. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no counterweight. All the major powers are now in varying degrees in the grips of authoritarian nationalism. Um, and not to say, not to make any case for the Soviet Union, but in the rise of fascism, there was also uh, the democracies and there was also uh, communism. There were counterweights. There's no counterweight now. It's just, uh, it's just authoritarianism globally, which means I think we're in for a long struggle and, um, and we'll counter victories um, uh, in smaller terms. Mm -hmm. If you are a liberal person, if you care about people, or if you just care about human rights, you know, you don't have to call yourself a liberal. I, you've got to be prepared to fight this. And I, I and that, that so I, I think like when, you know, I was referring to the so-called liberal press, I mean, I mean, that's, that, that's what's frustrating to me because, you know, I went to a fundamentalist Christian reform school that Mike Pence is associated with, you know, and, and, um, I know this is real. Like this is, this is real. Like people really need to be prepared to fight. And, and that's why your work is so important. Um, can you talk about your next book? Uh, next book's called This Brilliant Darkness, A Book of Strangers, and it's coming out in um, uh, February from Norton. Uh, it, on, on one level, it's a much more personal book. Uh, it begins uh, with uh, a heart attack my father had, and it ends uh, with a heart attack that I had uh, mm -hmm. a few years ago. And it's sort of the two years of reporting in between, um, the heart of which is dedicated to sort of a, a kind of authoritarianism at the, at the local level of... Uh, a police killing on Skid Row in Los Angeles. Um, but it's a sort of a collection of that, that reporting I'd done in that time and trying to break out of some kind of journalism norms. Uh, it includes my reporting on, on the anti-LGBTQ campaign in Russia. Um, and I think about it as sort of a, a survey of the varieties of poverty, ordinary, extraordinary, um, and, and spiritual as, as, as well. And, um, uh, yeah, we'll see. It's, it's, it's a very different book. It's, it's not, um, it's not, there is investigative journalism in it, but it's not, um, it's not the family. Uh, um, I, I, I've been drawn by this work on the series back into that story. I thought I was done with the family and with fundamentalism forever in 2010 when I, I published my last book and I said, great, now other people can you know, can work on this as well. And they have, and that's great. But um, uh, there's unfortunately too much going on. I, I ended my 2010 book, uh, C Street. Um, this is my one claim to uh, political, uh, political punditry. I ended it by saying, okay, uh, Senator Ensign, Governor Sanford, these guys no longer have real realistic White House, White House hopes. But maybe in 2016, it'll be a little known Indiana congressman named Mike. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I would 
close. I was pretty close. I was off by a seat, and uh, and uh, I won't be comfortable until he's much further away from that that spot. Um, uh, and that means I think I'm going to keep reporting. Um, you and me both, my friend. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love to be able to stop writing and thinking about the Christian right and just pursue things out of some sort of pure interest. But, uh, I mean, it's not going to happen anytime soon. I'm afraid not. I'm afraid not. So so we tell these kinds of stories. But, uh, yeah, thank you for giving me time to, to ramble on about this. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Deirdre. Thank you, Deepak. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Chrissy. Take care. Mm-hmm. You too. Take care, Jeff. Bye. Bye. Thank you all for joining us on Global Crossroads today, uh, featuring our interview with Jeff Charlotte, author of The Family and C Street and uh, producer of uh, the current Netflix docu-series on the family, uh, which I definitely recommend watching. Um, You can find Jeff online. He's active and interacts on Twitter. Um, His work is published in, you know, GQ, The New York Times, Harper's, pretty much everywhere. Um, You can find us online as well, uh, The Global Crossroads, podcast itself has a um a twitter page it's at crossroads underscore pod so if you like the podcast please follow us there Uh, if you want to support the podcast we also have a patreon uh that uh, we would greatly appreciate you funding this project as we put a lot of effort into it uh you can find me chrissy stroop on twitter at um c underscore stroop s-t-r-o-o-p and my website, featuring my blog called Not Your Mission Field, is at cstroop.com. And uh, remember, too, that we welcome listener feedback and questions. If you want to ask a question to any of us hosts here or to our guests, uh, you can add us on Twitter, and you can also use the hashtag AskGlobalCrossroads. Global Crossroads podcast is now available on iTunes. Please subscribe and review. Thank you for tuning in.